Right, um, I need to start with a little bit of clarification. Um, a couple of people came and um, spoke to me after the last talk and said, did you mean that God spoke through the serpent? The answer is no. What I meant by saying that is that God can use anything. Just like God used Balaam's ass and God um, used the serpent, um, God can use you and me in our preaching. It's not about our abilities, it's about our passion and our desire and our willingness. And God actually... Um, spoke through that serpent in the sense that he used it. He used it for a purpose. He can make a serpent speak, he made an ass speak, but it's not as though that serpent was speaking words from God. I hope that um, clears that up for people who are wondering what I meant by it. Okay, now I also need to clear up a few other things. Um, A number of people have come and asked me what bagging out means. (laughs) Any ideas? Take out the rubbish. rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like it. Slating. Did somebody say that? Slating? What, okay, what does slating mean to you? <laughs> Means bagging out. You are exactly right. Any other ideas? What does bagging out mean? <laughs> I've never heard of that one. He's from Australia too. Bagging out simply means you're just having a go at them. You're just like... You're crazy. You're just bagging them out. You're just having a go at them, okay? That's what I meant by that. Now, this, and I'm going to actually, it comes up a couple of times tonight if I remember to throw it in there. Um, the other one was pants. I said, right, while most 50-year-olds are thinking about jacking up their pension fund, um, Paul's packing his shirts, folding his shirts and his pants for another three and a half years on the road. I did not mean underpants. <laughs> I meant these things, Right? They're called trousers or jeans. I actually Googled, when, after a number of people asked me, what did you mean by pants? Um, I actually went and Googled it. And you know the first definition that comes up in Google? Trousers. It is only in Britain that, that trousers or pants, sorry, that pants are understood as underpants. So please forgive me for using that term. Um, but I did actually mean by it jeans or trousers. Okay. I've also been told off because a couple of people volunteered to read um, whenever it was that I did a talk last and I didn't reward them with Smarties or a mark on there. So you want to tell me who you are and don't lie. Don't make it up. Okay, and where are you... Oh, that was a really bad throw. Where are you from, mate? Where are you from? The UK. Actually, we're going to change this to England because somebody's added Wessex on here. I don't know what the go is, but somebody's added Wessex on here. This is England. Okay. Now, serious question for you. How are you guys going with um, the question that I asked you about 10 years? You remember the question I asked at the beginning? Where will you be and what will you be doing in 10 years' time if you kept doing what you're doing now? How are you progressing with coming to an answer on that one? In the last talk, I think it's on Friday, um, it would be really great if some of you want to volunteer to come up and share with people um, what it is that you, what's your vision, what's your goal, what it is that you want to be doing and what are you aiming for in 10 years' time. Right, we start with a who am I for tonight. Who am I? Sorry? Yes. No. Absolutely. Well done. That is Abraham Lincoln. Did it spill open? Here's another one. 
<laughs> okay. During the, or does anyone know when Abraham Lincoln lived? America. He lived in America, yes. Very well done. <laughs> You're clearly not from America. During what era? During the American Civil War, right? He was the president during the height of the American Civil War. And um, President Abraham Lincoln used to attend a church in Washington, and he would attend it with his aide. Nobody knew that the president was actually there. They would arrive and leave incognito. Nobody knew that the president was actually at church on the occasions that he came. And on one particular occasion, the war was really tearing the nation apart. And more than that, it was tearing his soul apart because his son had been lost in the war. So Lincoln himself was at the bottom rung. He needed solace and he needed sustenance. And as the pastor finished on this particular occasion, the people began to leave. He stood up quietly. He straightened his coat. He took his hat and began to leave. And the aide said to him, this is what he said, he said, I said to the president, um, what did you think of the sermon? And the president said, I thought the sermon was carefully thought through and eloquently delivered. So the aide said, so you thought it was a great sermon? And the president said, uh, no, I thought he failed. And the aide said, he failed? How? Why? And the president, Abraham Lincoln, said he failed because he did not ask of us something great. Tonight, guys, Paul is going to ask of you something great. Depending on your circumstances, maybe a few things. But we're going to discover what life with Paul would have been like. What it would have been like to go on tour with him. We're going to discover how he handled criticism. How those things changed him. Maybe it will change your perspective on life. Maybe it will help you refocus. Maybe it will help you handle criticism better in your life. Maybe it will help you see your way through a difficulty which you're experiencing now. Maybe through pain. Maybe through incredible suffering after a traumatic experience that you've had recently in your life. And if you haven't had it, the doubts are, or it is likely, that you will sometime in the future. Either way, whoever you are, wherever you live, Paul is going to ask of you at least one great thing. At least one. And we start tonight in Acts chapter 16. I've been told to um, pick on Joe Turton. Are you here, Joe? He's not here. It's pretty hard to pick on him then. No, he is here? He is here. (laughs) He's gone. Okay, can somebody read Acts chapter 16 and verse 1 to 2? Fantastic. You're from the UK, aren't you? Okay. Now, I just remembered that somebody told me that there's two Polish people here and there's one person here from Romania, is it? Is that right? We're putting you on the board and you guys are going to have marks against your name by the end of tonight. All right? Poland down here and Romania. What's the capital of Poland? 
Good, you got one already. <laughs> Where's this? Who, who answered that from Poland? There you go. You want one too? Here you go. Okay, so in Acts chapter 16, we're introduced to Timothy, right? Now, just to give you a bit of a perspective, how old was Timothy at this point in time? He is approximately 18 to 20 years of age, right? Now, the verses that we've just had read for us tell us that he was respected by the brethren at his ecclesia, and actually not just his ecclesia, but at another ecclesia as well. It says, verse 2, he was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. So who knows how long, but he's been in the ecclesia for a couple of years, right? He's been working in the ecclesia in some capacity. Maybe he's done an exhort, maybe he's done a couple of Bible classes. Whatever he's done, he's earned the respect of the brothers and sisters in those ecclesias. And, 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 he did all of that without being circumcised. Obviously, circumcision wasn't an issue for those ecclesias. And then Paul arrives on the scene in verse 3, right? Have a look at verse 3. Him, Timothy, would Paul have to go forth with him? Now, firstly, before we go any further, just stop reading. I want you to note what it says. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. Timothy didn't say, Paul, I want to go with you. No, Paul was man enough, right? He was blokey enough. He was man enough to say, I need help. I don't know what the guys are like here. I don't know what you males are like here. But sometimes in Australia, right, the guys just don't want to admit that they need help. You can see that they're in a really bad way. You can see that life's really bad for them, that things are really tough. And you go up and have a chat with them and they're just like, no, 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 all fine, mate, all fine. No, no problems at all, all good. Not prepared to admit, actually, things are really tough. I could do with a bit of help. I could do with a bit of assistance. The Apostle Paul was actually man enough to say, Timothy, I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me. And that's what he did. And then look at what it says. Next part of verse 3. And Paul took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews. Wow. I just want you to think about that for a moment, right? This guy's 18 to 20 years of age. He's worked in the ecclesias of Lystra and Iconium for years, presented Bible classes, exhorts, earned the respect of all the ecclesias. Nobody had an issue with the fact that he wasn't um, circumcised. The Apostle Paul arrives on the scene and he comes in and does exhorts and Bible classes and said, circumcision availeth nothing. There is no need for circumcision. Salvation is by faith. Circumcision means absolutely nothing. There is no value in being circumcised. The Apostle Paul's whole teaching made circumcision of absolutely no value. And now, Timothy says, he wants me to be circumcised. Paul, you've got to be joking. You've got to be joking, Paul. You've stood, I've heard you stand on our platform and say circumcision availeth nothing. We don't need to be circumcised. There's no value in being circumcised. Paul, you've come here. You've got a document in your hand from the Jerusalem Ecclesia, Acts chapter 15, saying you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. What are you doing? You're coming here. You've got a document in one hand saying you don't need to be circumcised. And in this hand, you've got a scalpel? What do you want, Paul? What are you doing? And do you know what Paul says? Well, Timothy, um, because our preaching will be far more successful. 
will win so many more people. You see, I like to try and be all things to all men. Okay, Paul, so you've got no chapter and no verse to prove that you know, I should be circumcised. Timothy, 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 Paul says, don't confuse circumcision as an act of salvation with circumcision as an act of love. Okay, so let me get this right, Timothy says. Paul, you've got no chapter, you've got no verses whatsoever to say that I should be circumcised. You agree that it's not going to assist my salvation or affect my salvation, but to ensure that the work is successful and to ensure that as many people as possible are interested in the gospel, you want me to be circumcised. And Paul said, exactly. And Timothy says, fine. Show me the scalpel. Do you know, guys, I don't know one guy who would be keen to be circumcised at the age of 20, especially when it's not a matter of salvation, especially when it's got absolutely nothing to do with their salvation. He's not doing it for himself. No personal benefit at all. He's going through that agony for other people. I'll speak for myself. I think I'd struggle with that big time. Not Timothy. Even at the young age of 18 to 20, no chapter, no verse. In fact, the Bible said you don't need to do it. No chapter, no verse to say that he should do it. Just the love of the brethren. And passion for the cause was enough for this young man to say, okay, I'll do it. His love was so strong and our love is sometimes so weak we're not willing to give in to anyone unless they can show me a chapter and verse as to why I should do that or why I shouldn't do that. Yeah, give me a chapter and verse, no problems. I'll, I'll, I'll believe you. If you can't give me a chapter and verse, I don't think so, Newman. Paul's and Timothy's passion for the cause of the gospel was enough for Paul to say, hey, Timothy, we want to make sure as many people as possible as many people as possible. We want to win as many people as we can to the cause of Christ. And to do that, we're going to try and be all things to all men. I'd like you to be circumcised. Okay, Paul. Okay. You know, there's absolutely no doubt, absolutely no doubt whatsoever that Paul was seriously criticised for that. Does anyone know why? Why was he a hypocrite? Yeah, fantastic. Double standards, right? You're saying one thing here, Paul. You're saying you don't need to be circumcised. And over here, you're putting this 18 to 20-year-old guy through pain and agony. And then not only that, what's another reason why he would have been criticised? Exactly. Titus wasn't circumcised. Titus enters in the work and Paul says, no, you don't need to be circumcised. But Timothy, yes, you do. So people would have been criticised. I can see the critics lining up against the Apostle Paul and saying, Paul, what are you doing? You're a closet legalist. You're a le- Don't give in to this legalist. So how did Paul handle critics? What did he do when the knives came out? How did he handle criticism? Well, Paul gives us some pretty awesome pointers on handling criticism 
and handling critics, and we find them in Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, and we find um, Paul standing before Felix and being accused. Verse 2, he's in court and uh, Felix called forth Tertullus to begin to accuse Paul. And this is what Tertullus said, verse 2. He said to Felix, look, mate, it's you that's given us all this quietness and you've done all these very worthy deeds by, under your hand. We accept it always and we thank you. We love you, Felix. You're just so noble. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do need to talk to you about this guy here. Verse 5, we found him a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. Now, you know, after the smoke has settled from Tertullus' slanderous slam on the Apostle Paul, Paul steps up to answer the charges. And this is actually where he stood. If you go to Israel today, you can stand on the exact spot where the Apostle Paul stood. That is at Caesarea, and it's at the palace that looks straight out over the ocean, over the um, Mediterranean, and it is in this exact room right here that the Apostle Paul stood to answer to Felix. And do you know what? Darts had been flying at him, right? Darts had been flying straight at him, piercing him. And do you know how he responds? It's pretty awesome. The words are brief, they're accurate, they're factual, and they're logical. And the first sentence is, I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy to be here. I'm cheerfully going to answer these charges. Have a look at it, what he says in verse 10. For as um, then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Are you for real, Paul? Are you for real? By now, he ought to be blazing with indignation. Absolutely blazing with indignation. He's been labelled a serial pest. He's been labelled the leader of a worldwide cult and publicly humiliated. And even though he'd copped all of that, he did not allow the emotion of the charges to take control. He refused to get uptight. Instead, he responded with simplicity and with reason. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to answer these charges. What would you do? What would you do? How would you react if somebody called you all those things? What if somebody publicly bagged you out, slated you out, whatever you guys want to call it? What if someone publicly slated you today in front of your ecclesia? Storm out of the hall? Stand up and argue? How would you handle the situation? Cheerfully? Or even when somebody that you love is criticised or bagged out, How would you respond to that? When we lower ourselves to the overcharged emotions of our accusers, straight thinking often caves into very irrational responses. Very irrational responses. And also to impulsive words. Uh, The words that you later regret. And Paul didn't go there. Paul didn't go there at all. In fact, look at where he did go in verse 19. Can somebody read verse 19 for me? Acts 24, verse 19. There are some Jews from the province of Asia, 
Fantastic. Do you know how awesome that is? If you have a pen, you have a pencil, you have anything, just underline it and highlight it, right? Because that is absolutely profound. That is putting finger on an exposed nerve. And do you know what Paul's saying? Paul is saying this. Where's the problem or where's the people who actually have a problem with me? Where are they? Where are the Jews who actually had the problem with me, who were there in the temple in Jerusalem, who actually were the ones who complained? Where are they? Oh, they're still down in Jerusalem. Okay, so this whole case is based on hearsay. Second, third, fourth hand hearsay. The entire case was hearsay. They had no facts. Somebody said this happened. I heard somebody say that somebody said that somebody said that Paul did that. The whole case was based on hearsay. And that's what Paul highlights. The total absence of evidence. Leaving the whole case based on hearsay. There they were, the high priests, the elders, none of them who were present at the original drama in the temple. You know, guys, it's fairly true to say that spreading criticism, spreading gossip is a cowardly and a very godless act. And Paul deals with the tactic by saying, I know my accusers, I know where they are. They're from Ephesus. They're Jews from Ephesus, and they're not even here. The people who have got a problem with me, they're not here. They're not standing in court. They're not not the ones who are laying the charges. The entire case is based off hearsay. And you know what? Felix knew Paul was right. Felix knew Paul was exactly right. There was no evidence. There was no witnesses. And what on earth can be done when when those things are missing? Dismiss the court. And that's exactly what happened. Felix dismisses the court and puts Paul at liberty and says, prohibit none of his friends from coming to see him. The entire case was dismissed. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. But I need to say, young people, that I think this is an area in which we fail really bad. Really badly. We think the worst rather than the best, don't we? We think the worst of others rather than the best. We pass on rumour, we pass on criticism that we've heard from someone to other people. Just love, 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 love gossip. And the saucier it is, the more interesting it is, and the faster it goes. And without even establishing fact from fiction, we pass it on. Well, why? Just cause. Just cause. No plan to help the people. No plan to help the person or the parties involved. No, let's just bag them. Let's just bag them. You know, sometimes it happens publicly without shame at all. But more often than not, it's a dagger cloaked in stealth, stabbing the victim in the back. And you know, surprisingly, surprisingly, the fingerprints on the dagger often don't point to a hardened criminal, but to a haloed saint who just a few moments before sung the sweetest of hymns, spoken the most encouraging of words, or offered the most touching prayer. 
cheap religion is worse than no religion at all. Don't pray Our Father on Sunday mornings and then live the rest of that week living like an orphan. It doesn't work. You can be very religious, right? You can read all these religious books. You can write religious things. You can mark your Bible till it's a mobile rainbow. But that doesn't make you godly. You can be very religious, but not godly. And I think this is something that we all struggle with, isn't it? This is something in which we fail with quite significantly. I'm thinking Paul may be asking something great of us right here. Right here. You know, personally, young people, I have rarely, if ever, if ever, been hurt by someone coming to me directly and criticising me. I love it. The people who know me will know that, and they do know it. No problems with criticism. I relish feedback. I absolutely love it. I choose to believe all the criticism that I get and all the feedback I get, it's because people are trying to help me. If you want to all line up at the end of today and just come past and criticise me, I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm okay with it. I don't mind criticism. I can absolutely handle it. But I'll tell you something. My deepest wounds, my deepest wounds have been inflicted by second, third, fourth, fifth, and criticism and gossip. Uh, Nath, um, I was talking to someone recently and um, they were pretty upset with you when you... I was talking to somebody recently and they weren't very happy when you... Not interested. Not interested. People passing on criticism and hearsay that somebody gave to them. You know, this is a pretty awesome example. It's a pretty good case study in why we shouldn't be doing that. If the criticism is serious enough, if it is serious enough or the original source believes it's serious enough, tell them to go and talk to the person directly. Don't you be the little messenger and take it to someone else and pass it on. If it's serious enough or they believe it's serious enough, tell them to go and talk to the individual personally. And I'll go on record saying that I am not interested in hearing second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, whatever, hand criticism. Not interested in hearing it. And I'll tell you why I don't like it. And the first is because it won't be all the facts. Exactly like Paul identified in Acts chapter 24. It is totally, completely wrong. The whole case was wrong because it was based on hearsay. And when somebody comes to you with hearsay information, it will not be based on the fact. It, It will have major errors. Second reason is you won't get all the context or the emphasis or actually get to the real problem. More often than not, when somebody's criticising you, it's not actually what you've done. There's probably a fundamental reason behind it and you don't even get the opportunity to explore that or do anything about it or find anything out about the issue. And the third reason is you can't rectify the situation with the person. You can't do anything about it. You can't go back to the person and say, look, I'm sorry, you're actually right. Or, look, I understand what you're saying and, and this is my thoughts and this is why I did what I did. You don't get that opportunity. And that is why I'm not interested in in hearsay. If it's serious enough, they'll talk to me direct. So when someone comes to me and says, hey, look, um, I heard somebody say, do you know what I do? Just put my finger in my ears. Not interested. Not interested. Thank you. I'd be very happy to hear what this person's thoughts are. So could you go back and suggest that they come and talk to me directly or give me their name 
and I'm more than happy to go and talk to them. And do you know what? 99% of the time, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing. And that's why it's not worthwhile getting down about it. That's why it's not worth hearing it. And the whole case in Acts chapter 24, the court was dismissed because the case was based on hearsay. Now, you know, I don't know where you find yourself in this story. Obviously, this is a very first century situation. But um, if you're in the process of casting stones, just make sure that you're not throwing them at a person that somebody else has a problem with. Make sure that the case isn't based on hearsay. And if you're about to cast stones, go and talk to the person directly. Don't go and get somebody else to do your dirty work. No. Be big enough to go and talk to them directly. And look, if you don't really know the person, you're getting ready to criticise, or if you don't know all the facts, then I'd probably suggest that you pass up the opportunity. Put your stones in your pocket and go home. Because loving someone begins with knowing them. What does Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, I think it is, have to say on the subject? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, when you know somebody, when you've got a good relationship with somebody, it doesn't matter how hard those words are to hear, they're said with love. And it is always worthwhile listening to the criticism of your friends. It'll hurt. It may hurt really deep. But they're reliable because it's done out of love. You know, my personal guideline on this subject is not to criticise someone if I don't know their middle name. I've got no idea what Matt's name, middle name is, so I'm not going to criticise his chairman. No, not really. Um, now, I don't want you guys just to take that and adopt it and then go and find out everyone's middle name just so you can bag them out. <laughs> right? But that's my basis. It's how I know the person. I know the person quite well if I know their middle name. Does that make sense? That's my personal guideline as to the basis on which I may decide to go and give some criticism or some feedback to somebody. You see, Christ says, by love, it's by your love. It's because of your love that other people will peek over the fence of your ecclesial halls, of your homes, and they'll think, hey, they must be disciples of Jesus. Is that someone you guys know? I don't, know any, I don't know anyone that dresses like that. But it's okay to dress like that. There's no one I know, trust me. Okay, it's by love that people are going to know that we're the disciples of Jesus. It's not when we're being unfair and being ungodly in our behaviour. Okay, so um, here's two, some pointers on how Paul handled criticism. First, firstly, don't get caught up in the emotion of the charges. Point number two, stay with the facts. And point number three, tell the truth with a clear conscience. Tell the truth with a very clear conscience. Identify the original source of the accusations. Don't surrender or quit or just give in. Don't become impatient and bitter. No, stand firm on the promises of God. Okay, now, I think I've been fairly intense and fairly hard on you, so I want you all to take a pen and a piece of paper out and I'm going to do something very light for a moment before we get into the next pretty heavy-duty thing. Take a piece of paper and a pen and I want you to write on it a number between 1 and 10. Any number between 1 and 10. 
Then I want you to multiply that number by nine. Is that too hard for you to do? Yeah? So just tell me the number and I'll tell you what it is. Just pick a number between one and ten and then multiply it by nine. Everybody done that? If you have a two-digit number, if your number is two digits now, I want you to add the first and the second digit together. After you've done that, subtract five. Everyone's okay with that? Everyone's up? Yeah? Now what I would like you to do is pick the letter of the alphabet that corresponds to your number. For example, A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, D equals four, E equals five, so on. Pick the number of the alphabet that corresponds, or pick the letter of the alphabet that corresponds to your number. And then, think of a country, think of a country that begins with that letter. Hang on, don't have to tell me yet. (laughs) Now, whatever your letter in the alphabet is, go to the next letter. And I want you to think of an animal that starts with that letter. Write it down on your bit of paper, don't tell me. Okay, most people have done it. Do you guys think that of all the countries in the world and of all the animals in the world, I'll be able to tell you what you've got written on your bit of paper? Denmark and elephant. (laughs) What? Emu? Jaguar? You did it wrong. You did it wrong. You have to get a D and an E. If you didn't get a D and an E, you've done it wrong. Go through it again if you didn't get to a D and an E. Almost everybody says Denmark and elephant. Okay. Right, let's move on. I think I deserve a packet of Smarties for getting that one right. Now, Australia can actually. Okay. (laughs) Okay, guys. I think um, it's very true to say that very few people have experienced the magnitude of suffering which the Apostle Paul did. I don't think anybody would probably disagree with that. The pressure he lived with was pretty well borderline unbearable, fairly full-on, pretty intense pressure. Most of us would probably consider hanging up our boots, retiring to the French Riviera and sipping iced tea. That's probably what most of us would do. But, you know, the Apostle Paul, in his autobiography, which is 2 Corinthians tells us how he saw life and tells us how he coped with the immense pain and suffering and the traumatic experiences that he went through. Let's fast forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'd love somebody to read verse 3 and 4, but who's going to do this? Can somebody volunteer? Put your hand up. Okay. Can you read verse 3 and 4 first? Look at the words that are repeated through it. And every time you read that word, say it really loud. Fantastic. Where are you from? 
Scotland. Okay. Here you go. Does anybody know what word was repeated? Comfort. Okay, fantastic. Paul is talking about comfort, right? The words like leap off the page as you're reading them. Now, what's the idea of comfort? Well, comfort is given by somebody coming alongside you and helping you. Have any of you guys been to hospital? I have, right? When you're in hospital, I don't know if it's like this over here, but when you're in hospital, you can lie there on your bed, you know, you're really hurting, and you've got this little button that you can press. It's red, right? And the nurse comes rushing to your side and just says, how can I help you, Mr. Skipper? Perfect. That's exactly what we're talking here. Somebody coming alongside to help you, coming alongside to comfort you and help you through the pain and the suffering that you may happen to have at that point in time. Do you know, young people, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that when tragedy strikes or when disaster strikes in your life, collapsing your life like a deck of cards, um, what happens? What happens? Well, um, it's comfort, isn't it? It's comfort that we need most. We need somebody to come alongside us and put their arm around us and be there to listen and to help. And the Apostle Paul tells us that for him, that was the Father. That was God. And, you know, providing comfort is God's specialty. Providing comfort is the Father's specialty. Have you ever thought about God like that? Coming alongside you and putting your arm around you and comforting you in the pain and the suffering and the traumatic experiences that may have happened in your life or may happen in your life. Have you ever thought about the Father like that? Do you know, I think it's also true that as well as being comforted, we also like to know that our suffering has a purpose. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul gives us two possible reasons for the purposes of suffering. And the first one is as follows. Suffering prepares us to comfort others. Do you know what Paul's saying, guys? This is really amazing. He's saying it's a chain reaction. When we go through suffering, God comforts us. He comforts us. And then when that comfort has done its work in our life, then we in turn can comfort other people who are in similar situations or similar predicaments. Someone who's suffered the loss of a parent or someone who's suffered the loss of a child can give the best comfort to a grieving parent or to a child who has lost a parent. Devastating. Someone who's been there and someone who's done it can give the best kind of comfort. Someone who's suffered the shattering effect of a relationship breakup is often best placed to offer support to other people who are going through the same thing. Someone who's lost their job is often best placed to understand the pain of somebody who's just lost theirs. And somebody who has battled with drugs is often the best support to one who's going through that same difficulty. And what Paul is saying is that we're comforted, so in turn we can comfort others. Let's have a look at verse 6 to 7. And whether we be afflicted, it's for your consolation. Some translations will read comfort, and that's correct. It's actually the same word, comfort, right? And whether we be afflicted, it's for your comfort. 
and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. Whether we be comforted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also be partakers of the comfort. Wow. Wow, the Apostle Paul saying, we go through trauma, we go through unbelievable situations sometimes. Some people go through devastating situations in their life. And Paul says, choose to look at it and say, I'm going through this and one of the purposes of it is that I will be able to help other people who are going to go through a similar situation in their life. It can help put some sort of perspective to what is going on. And lest you think for a moment that the Apostle Paul's advice is just theoretical. Do you know he happens to then recount some more information in this chapter to show us that what he's saying actually comes from the textbook of real life. Verse 8. But we had the sentence... Verse 8. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. We were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. What an incredible attitude. All the bashings, all the stonings, all the beatings, the physical assaults, the shipwrecks, the sleepless nights. Ah. I'll be able to help others. Now I can give some comfort to people who go through similar situations. Now I can be able to offer some sort of comfort and assistance to those people. Do you know, I want you to note that the Apostle Paul viewed himself as being on the brink of death. Like, right on the brink of death. And it was while he was teetering on that brink, he actually discovered the second purpose for suffering. And it's in verse 9. The second purpose is, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raised the dead. Suffering keeps us from trusting ourselves. Intense suffering and pain is designed to remind us of our utter helplessness. Because it's when we're most helpless that we're the most dependent on our God. It's when we're the most helpless that we need our God most. And so the two purposes of suffering. Suffering prepares us. It helps us to be able to comfort others. And secondly, suffering keeps us from trusting ourselves. Do you know, in verse 8 and 9, where he starts talking about affliction, he's talking about pressure. I had pressure, pressure of opposition, rejection, beatings, stonings, all of that, and it took me to the point where I despaired of my life. The full load of intense pressure weighed so heavily on him, he felt that he'd reached the end. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you too have felt that as well. For Paul, the, fresh, the pressure felt like a death sentence. Eventually, it would finish him off. Have you been there? Have you ever felt that it's all too much and time to give up? Well, verse 9, 10, 9 to 10 tells us that the secret to Paul's endurance lay in his ability to see God's perspective. Paul allowed the pressure to strengthen his trust in God and in God 
alone. Look at verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. He has delivered me in all the trauma, in all the pain, in all the stonings and in all the beatings and everything I've been through, he has delivered. I wouldn't call that being delivered, being beaten within an inch of my life. But that's how Paul says it. I was delivered from death. He's delivered me. He has delivered me. He is delivering me right now and he will deliver me in the future. How could he think like that? How on earth is it possible to think like that when you're going through what he did, when you will go through and went through what he did? Well, simply because he focused on God's ability to handle the circumstances from the start to the finished. And that allowed him to lean on and to tap into God's power. He reached the point where he realised that he wasn't capable of altering anything. That he wasn't competent enough to fix the problem. That he couldn't solve all the dilemmas. And his confidence drained away to the point that he despaired of his life. And it was at that critical moment, it was at that critical juncture that he found supernatural strength by looking up. By looking up. Lord, right now, I'm unable to go on. I'm not capable. I'm not competent. I trust you and I trust you alone. Oh, but we'd rather admire Paul's strength for his, how he endured the trials. We want to admire his determination just to keep going. How he endured all that intense persecution. It's almost like the apostle could say, I did it my way. I, I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my way. You know, if he was here, young people, he would just completely dismiss that in an instant. Wouldn't tolerate the thought for a moment. No, 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 no. You do not understand. I am not strong. They are the exact words that he would have said. The one who pours his strength into me is the one who is strong. And that's why I'm strong. Because I'm letting him pour his strength into me. My strength, Paul says, my strength comes from admitting and accepting my weaknesses. You know, young people, real strength, real strength comes from embracing your weaknesses owning your weaknesses and opening your hand to strength from God. Opening your hand and your heart and your life to receiving strength from our Father. All sounds so good, doesn't it? It all sounds so good as long as you're not in the midst of trial. So how can we take these principles off the page and into our lives? Well, the next time suffering, pain and trauma shows up in your life, just think about the following. How to respond. Instead of focusing only on yourself and your difficulties, consider how this experience will help you to help 
and comfort others. Don't fight. Surrender. Allow the pressure to strengthen your trust in God alone. He has delivered. He is delivering. Like right now, he's delivering. And he will deliver. And lastly, and maybe it's the hardest, because it's a big question, isn't it? When there's pain and there's immense suffering and trial, the question pops into our head, why me? Why me? Try to replace the why me question with what am I to learn? What am I to learn from this? And you know, the Apostle Paul learned that God's grace was enough. It was more than enough. It was all he needed. Because he realised that God actually used his weaknesses to make him stronger than he could have ever been on his own. Do you guys realise how incredible the grace of God actually is. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a son who you love dearly. And tragically, one day, you discover that your son was horribly murdered. After a lengthy search, the investigators arrest the killer. And you have a choice. You have a choice. If you used every means in your power to kill the murderer for his crime, that would be vengeance. If, however, you're prepared and happy to sit back and let the legal authorities take over and execute on that murderer what was proper, a fair trial, a plea of guilty and capital punishment, that is justice. But... If you should plea for the pardon of the murderer, forgive him completely, invite him into your home and adopt him as your son, that is grace. And you're sitting there and thinking, I could never, ever do that. And that's what your father does every single day. Every day. He welcomes you back into his home and adopts you as his son. Young people, there's one more part of the story. It's not mentioned in the Bible. I'm having a drink. There's one more part of the story that's not mentioned here. It's not actually mentioned in the Bible. It's your story and it's your life. Let's just get really personal for a moment and fast forward to the 21st century. Are you afflicted and burdened excessively? Or are you feeling mistreated, misunderstood, maybe even alone or forsaken? Or do you feel as if you're under such intense pressure that you too are close to despairing of life, wishing that it would all be over? 
Do you know, God knows. God knows. Just like Paul, he knows where you are. He's aware and he cares. And I want you to imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild your house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drain sorted. He's fixing all the leaks in the roof. He's plugging all the holes. They were the jobs that you knew had to be done, so you're not surprised whatsoever. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that incredibly hurts. doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he doing? Well, he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor over there. He's running up towers and he's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a pretty decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. You know, when times are tough, young people, resist the temptation to roll up your sleeve and muster a self-recovery plan. Rather than fighting back, Just surrender. Embrace your weakness and lean on the Father because he's at work. He's there. He's working behind the scenes. It may not seem like it. It may not seem like it, but he is and he'll work it out. He has delivered. He is delivering and he will deliver. He has a plan and just when you're convinced that the bottom has or is about to drop out of your life, just when you feel lower than a footprint, he steps in. And his timing is always perfectly synchronised with his will. In your case, I have no idea. Who knows how the Father will do it? But he will ensure that you arrive precisely where he wants you to be. In his kingdom. Hi everyone. I hope all is well with you all. I'm pretty excited to tell you that we've had someone join us in the work. His name's Timothy. His incredible commitment to the cause of the gospel is such an inspiration. The memory of the pain that he went through for the benefit of others will never leave me. It's such a joy to be working with him. This week's hate mail was pretty full on. Nothing like gossip, hearsay and public criticism. I was on trial before, before Felix, but the case was thrown out of court because the prosecutor's case was based entirely on hearsay. One thing I've learnt, don't be affected by hearsay and certainly don't sp- start it or pass it on. I also want to share with you three things that have helped me realise the light at the end of the tunnel is not an oncoming train. When times are tough... Focus on others and think about how you can now help others through their difficulties. Secondly, stop trying to find your own way out of difficulties and instead lean on God completely. Third, don't ask why me. Try asking for what reason. Trust me, it's possible. I'm a case study in this. Keep smiling. Stay positive. The best is yet to come.